He's a retired DEA agent. Spent much of his career overseas at different locations, working undercover, supervising undercover. He's here to talk about the realities of working undercover and the dangers with the international drug smuggling organizations. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. And if you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Calling us from Virginia, we have Michael Brown on the phone. Michael is retired Drug Enforcement Administration agent. He's also the director of Kenner Narcotics Partnerships at Rigaku Analytical Devices. Michael, thanks so much for being guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Hey, Jay. Thank you for, uh, for the invitation. It's good to have you here. And by the way, I worked for about a year and a half, almost two years, detailed the DEA task force in Baltimore, working on drug organizations. My specialty was uh, Jamaican cocaine organizations in Baltimore, extended to Washington, Miami. Great organization, great people. Hey, Dave, let me, let me first say condolences. I understand a Boston police officer was uh, shot uh, recently. Yeah, it was, it's, a, it's a tough day. A, a female officer in Baltimore was ambushed from behind and shot multiple times. Right. And at this stage, she's on life support, and it, it doesn't look good. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, Michael, it's brought up a lot of bad memories and a lot of bad feelings. It's a tough day. Well, without question. I mean, we've seen almost 50 to 60 of these so-called ambushes in the last year or so against our law enforcement officers. Uh, it's really time to take a new direction, I think. Maybe you can relate to this having worked in law enforcement for so long. One of the things that comes to my mind is I've got a lot of scars. I went through a lot of battles, a lot of gunfights, and I don't know how I survived. And some people didn't. I I just don't get it. There's no rhyme or reason to this. No, no, you're absolutely right. You know, working in the federal side of it, I had had one, one instance where I was involved in a shooting. But I would say the biggest difference between working federally against violent criminal organizations and being a patrol officer is that the problem with being a patrol officer, you just walk into a situation. You have no idea what to expect when you're driving your vehicle, when you're going to a, a domestic violence call, or you're just doing a patrol. You're completely vulnerable. On the federal side, we usually know who our targets are. We know where they are, what they're doing, and we usually go in force. 
I think that's why you see less shootings on the federal side as opposed to you know, our brave men and women you know, who are working as first responders. They're pretty much working in the blind, and, and, and that's a significant problem for them. You know, I worked for years in plain clothes, I'm a detailed DEA, and, and specializing in surveillance, narcotics investigation, all that stuff. And when I wound up placing very high on the sergeant's promotional list, they cycled me out, put me back in uniform. And in a way, it was a relief to be back in patrol. But you are very much aware that when you're in a patrol car, you are driving around in a marked car, in uniform, you're a 24-7, 365 target every time you're out there. No, exactly correct. You know, one of the benefits of being, you know, plain clothes is no one knows who you are. But, you know, when you're in a black and white and you have the uniform on, sirens in the car, you're absolutely right. You're a target. And in today's environment, that can be a very dangerous situation. I want to go back to your career. One of the things, I guess, advantageous and, and other federal agents have told me most retired is that we get to pick and choose what we worked on to some degree. With local law enforcement, you don't have any control over it. You handle what's put in front of you. Whatever the call is, you go handle it. No, you're exactly right. As I said earlier, you know, being a patrolman, you're like, you're a frontline soldier. You're just, you're out there on the front line and you're walking into unknown situations. Now, for me, as a, as a DEA special agent, we, we take a hierarchy. We look at the targets and we go after the most violent and the most identifiable targets. And then we plan a strategy and we go after that target. So it's done in a very calculated and safe manner to reduce the probability of an officer getting hurt or the target himself or herself being hurt. So it, we can control that environment. We can control that investigation, which is why I think DEA and the FBI, we have such success, you know, targeting and dismantling these large, large-scale violent drug trafficking organizations. You know, again, whereas the patrolman, patrol woman, they're out there on their own. Sometimes just one person in the car working late at night, you know, I had a friend who was a sheriff's deputy in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was killed at 1230 in the, in, in, at night by walking up to the back of a van. They opened a the door and they shot him. He simply had no way of anticipating what was going to happen that night. No, and that's the reality is one of the things you said that is so crucial. We did our best to control when I was detailed DEA, and I know they do this part of their operational procedures, and same working narcotics. We try to do everything to control the environment, reduce the amount of risk of violence to yourself or other people or having discharge a firearm, any of that stuff. You want to catch them by surprise. And the vast majority of time, you're able to do that. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of threat of violence with drugs. What's the old Warren Zavon song? Lawyers, drugs, and money. And there's guns in there, too. No, you're 100% right. I mean, you can, you can only control the situation to a certain degree. But that, those vital few seconds before you put hands on a target, that's a few seconds could be, seem like weeks before you put your hand on a target. And that individual has a few seconds to, to have a gun, to take aim, and to fire. And, you know, DEA has lost a number of agents over the last 30 to 40 years in just that situation. You know, Ever Hatchard comes to mind. Uh, DEA agent in New York City was on surveillance. I was going in on a target. Target turned around and shot him within a matter of seconds. You know, Agent Hatcher didn't have an opportunity to respond. So, you know, even though the the shooting events on the federal level are lower, the probability of having a significant violent event is much higher. I also remember very well, and I know you will through Kiki Camarena and what happened with him. And uh, it, I, I can't speak for you guys. When I say guys, that means men and women. But I can't speak for the DEA, but it changed the way we did things. We lost a lot of people over the years due to 
violence in particular. But Kiki Camarena was abducted, tortured, and murdered. And I don't think the DEA has ever been the same since. They've changed everything about the way they do business. You know, Kiki Camarena is extremely outstanding, outstanding agent. Um, you know, DEA has an overseas foreign agent program. I was part of that program for 13 years. I worked in Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, Central and South America. Of course, Kiki Camarena was working in one of the most dangerous narco states in the world, and that's Mexico, targeting, I believe it was the Guadalajara uh, cartel. And he simply did his job too well. But of course, you know, when you work in countries like Mexico, Colombia, and Bolivia, you don't have the same protections as you do in the United States. There's a large amount of corruption, and the violence is simply, as you know, if you're watching the news today, the violence in Mexico is off the chart. More than 65,000 homicides over the last 20 to 30 years. So, you know, when, we, when agents go overseas and we work like Kiki Camarena did, we're putting ourselves in an extremely dangerous context where we don't have control over that environment. So on your way home from the embassy, going out to meet a source or to meet a counterpart, you're completely vulnerable. But I would have to say one of the positive things that came out of that situation was the U.S. response under director, I believe it was Director Lawn at that time. The U.S. response was, was massive and it was significant. And DEA working with its counterparts in Mexico, we went after the cartels hard. And that sent a message to cartels in Colombia and Peru and other places that, hey, if you touch an agent, you touch a DEA agent the way they touch Kiki Camarena, the retribution will be swift and it will be specific. And, and I think that's be... what kept agents safe over the last couple of years. Absolutely. And it should be severe. And we're going to say severe. That doesn't mean unjust. It just means harsh. We're talking with Michael Brown, retired DEA agent. We have so much more to talk about. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. Good day. Short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Michael Brown. Calling us from Virginia. Michael is retired DEA special agent. He is also director of counter narcotics partnerships at Rigaku Analytical Devices. We'll talk about them and the important work they do a little bit later on in the show. Michael, your career. Spending what twenty five years in DEA? No, oh, actually thirty two years. 30, you don't sound that old. Fifty seven. They forced me out at fifty seven, um, so I actually retired uh, last May and then started with uh, Ragaku in June. Actually, how old were you when you started as a DEA agent in training? You know, Jet. I came out of college at twenty four, was headed to law school, and then made a sudden change to federal law enforcement. So I, I graduated from the DEA Academy in nineteen eighty nine. I believe it was September. Funny thing is, uh, the agent I worked with in DEA, she's now since long retired. She was a recent college graduate, and it wasn't on her radar either. And someone recruited her, and she wanted to be a great agent. 
Yeah, you know, like I said, um, I was watching uh, an episode of 60 Minutes, and it was DEA's special operation called Snowcap in Central and South America. And it showed agents repelling out of helicopters along with special forces in those host countries going directly after, you know, significant drug, drug targets, drug laboratories. And I saw that and I said, you know, it was like a recruiting commercial, Jay. It's like, that's what I need to do. And uh, so I went down to the DA recruiter's office and put my application in. All that excitement has got what got you uh, hooked. In a minute. I mean, I was working in retail security as a, a store security um, a specialist. So I was kind of had some semi-experience with law enforcement on a very low level. But then when I saw that hour-long special on DEA special operations, both foreign and domestic, I said, you know, this is something that I think I would be very good at. We've had several retired DEA agents on the show. We've had uh, Larry Forletta, who was a Maryland State Trooper, went to DEA. We had Joe Piersanti. He was shot and uh, blinded in Afghanistan as part of the FAST right. team. We had mm-hmm. uh, Murphy and Pena, who are known for their work uh, getting um, Pablo Escobar in Colombia on. And, you know, all of them were fascinating interviews. The thing about them is they defy the Hollywood stereotypes of what narcotics officers are supposed to be like. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the majority of, of Hollywood's representation of, especially of DEA, is that they're corrupt. You know, they're out there stealing money and, and killing bad guys. And that could not be farther from the truth. You know, I've been on the job for 32 years. I know hundreds of agents. And every one of those individuals, would, they risk their lives every day out there doing the job. You know, nobody joins DEA to get rich. You join DEA because you have a serious commitment to you, honesty, loyalty, and fidelity. You know, and those are part of the reasons that I joined also. One of the things you and I both know, I don't know if you knew this before you went in on the job. I thought I knew. I thought I had an idea of the level of violence I would encounter uh, and the level of violence that was involved with the drug game. And when I talk about drug game, the local drug gangs, not even the big organized ones, just the local street crews. Were you shocked at how violent the whole drug game is? You know, Jay, I grew up in an upper-middle-class suburb in Cincinnati, Ohio, went to great schools, had great parents. Um, you know, when I graduated the academy, my first assignment was Detroit, Michigan in, in 1989, which at that time Detroit had one of the highest body counts uh, related to dr- drugs and gang activity in the country at roughly five to 600. Um, my first year working in Detroit was, was an awakening. I mean, you're growing up on, on drug houses, drug shootings, the, the carnage that I saw in a very small area of Detroit was unbelievable. You know, working with Detroit Homicide, working with Detroit Counter Narcotics, you're on the front lines and, and you see the bodies, you see what it looks like when somebody gets shot, somebody gets stabbed. And, it, you know, it, it took me, I, I'll be honest, it took a couple of years for me, I don't want to say get used to it, but to develop, you know, that callous exterior you need to have when working at that level and having that level of exposure um, on a daily basis. It really was daily. And I, I tell people that I remember meeting kids when I was a young patrolman on this warm summer days. It was very slow, which is very rare. You know, when you meet young kids, they're 10, 11 years old. You have great conversations. And then I was there when they took their last breath because they'd been shot to death by the drug dealer. The drug dealer mm-hmm. they worked for because they came up short on the count one too many times. Right. No, I mean, in some of these neighborhoods, you know, everybody talks about these kids have a, have a choice, they have an option. I have to say, in my opinion, sometimes they don't, because they're the children of, of second, third, and fourth generation drug traffickers or other criminals. So really, what is their choice 
you know, you're 10 years old, your father was arrested for narcotics, your grandfather was in prison for narcotics, you know, your mother was a, a drug addict. So really, what are your choices at that age? It's either going to the gang or be killed by the gangs. There's, there's two options, right? Red pill, red pill, blue pill. So, you know, in dealing with a lot of these, these young uh, violators, 16, 17 years old, they would say to me, Agent Brown, what do you, what do you expect me to do? You know, I don't have a future in, in school. I can't be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer. Because every time I leave the house, I've got to go through gang territory, whether it's Crips or Bloods or what have you. And, and that's the reality that no one talks about today. That's a reality that I encountered in Baltimore as well. I was worked the high crime areas and lots of guns, lots of drugs, lots of narcotics. I remember when crack cocaine came through and changed the way things are done. But we had, back then, we had what we called, uh, heroin addicts had boxing gloves, great big swollen hands from the veins uh, problems they had. Yes. They've been around forever. Mm-hmm. And the heroin problem in Baltimore is decades old. Uh, personally... I don't think we as a country have gotten serious about any of this stuff until it started invading the suburbs. Well, I think America became normalized to drug trafficking and violence in the, in the inner cities and in the city communities of color. And then suddenly with the opioid epidemic, with synthetic opioids, methamphetamine, we saw it like, almost like COVID. We saw it jump from one host to another host, right, that was more susceptible to a different type of drug addiction. Um, prescription pills, for example. So like COVID, we saw that drug addiction metastasize outside of the, um, outside of the inner city, much like AIDS when it jumped from, you know, homosexual community to the heterosexual community, we saw a greater focus. You know, and unfortunately, sometimes in our society, uh, we see this mutation and we don't pay attention to it in the initial stages. We wait until it metastasizes and becomes a significant threat to our culture as a whole. And then we see mobilization, um, which and sometimes it's, it's too late to get a control or to get a handle on. And we could argue at that point forever. And I, I agree with you 100%. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you know, no one's exactly. got great forward vision. We can always say, hey, we should have done this. We should have done that. We can do things differently. You know, and one of the things that is this political movement where, hey, we want to set up safe injecting sites. We want to do this. We want to do that. And that's going to solve the crime problem. And reality is, you and I both know that there's just more people dying. Well, you know, safe site injections, I've been reading up on that. And that's a very touchy situation because we're at a point now we're looking at 100,000 unintentional drug overdoses. So I think most states and cities, especially like Massachusetts, New York, Oregon, where they're seeing a high rate of synthetic overdoses, um, they want some kind of program, excuse me, that will reduce the amount of overdose, um, unintentional overdoses. So these safe site injections theoretically would offer a place where an individual could come in, have his particular narcotics checked for fentanyl, other toxic chemicals, and he'd be allowed to safely inject. Safely inject. There. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Michael Brown, retired DEA agent, also director of counter-narcotics partnerships at Rigaku Analytical Devices. This is the Law Enforcement Day Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Want to win great prizes in awesome contests? Who wouldn't want that? It's easy. Just sign up and subscribe for the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. 
all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Michael Brown. Michael is a retired DEA agent. He is also a director of Counter Narcotics Partnerships at Rigaku Analytical Devices. Check them out, Rigaku.com. It's spelled R I G A K U.com, correct? That's correct, sir. I'm glad I got that finally. So I want to thank you for your service in the DEA. I forgot to do that earlier. When we were talking earlier, you're talking about graduating college and and you got the bug and you got it and you're assigned to Detroit and was that your your last United States assignment before you wound up going overseas? Well, actually, when I was uh, assigned to Detroit within my first year, I did my first year as a freshman agent and then I applied for DEA Special Operations Snowcap, which was DEA's Central and South American Counter Addiction Program. But here's the catch. In order to get accepted in that program, you had to successfully pass uh, the Ranger School course down at Fort Benning. So I couldn't, that was, you know, so I signed up. I got to go to Fort Benning, Georgia, go through the Ranger program. It was somewhat modified. You know, we didn't do jump phase or desert phase, but we did all the other Ranger School training. After about three to four months of training, they went to Spanish school, and then I deployed to Central and South America. I worked primarily in Bolivia, Honduras, and Guatemala, where I worked with a small team of agents, and we were count, we were partnered with a special operation forces in Bolivia and working in the uh, down towards the Amazon basin with Colombia. And our specific function was to go out, search and destroy, locate drug labs, clandestine airstrips, chase uh, fugitives, and basically disrupt trafficking opportunities operations within high-trafficking areas located in the jungles. In Guatemala and Honduras, we worked there in addiction, interdicting Cessna's flying from Colombia into Mexico, carrying loads of cocaine. So those four years, I did that, three or four-month deployments. Then I went back to Detroit, worked undercover operations, and then redeployed. So you're going from the jungles of Central and South America to Detroit, the urban jungle, for lack of better words, and then back. And basically from suit and tie to boots on the ground, back to suit and tie. How does one make that transition? Because I, I don't know how you go from being a street enforcement investigator to doing that high-risk type of work in, in another country. You know, I worked with, I had the opportunity to work with um, SEALs and other U.S. Special Forces that were in those regions doing training. You know, I think it really takes a certain kind of individual because, you know, if you're a SEAL or you're a Special Forces operator, you're doing it full-time. But for DEA, you know, we had a lot of former military, a lot of former uh, police officers, and then we had individuals like myself who, would, for the, they were doing this for the first time. And I think it takes a really certain kind of individual that can jump into a jungle environment for three months, living, you know, on the ground in the jungle with your counterparts, and then you're on a C4 flying back to Detroit, and two days later you're in a suit and tie, testifying in court, doing undercover, working your investigations. I'll be I honest think for with me, you. that was the that was the attraction. There was a time where I maybe would have liked that. Now, when I travel, I want a nice, cushy hotel with air <laughs> conditioning, comfortable bed, and all the channels on the television. Yeah, I would have to say my, my evolution from boots on the ground went to DEA country attaches working in embassies in Central 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 Asia and Far East Asia, and that was a big big change in, in the way I uh, my career went in working counter narcotic investigations. I'm glad you brought that up because. 
you know, you grew up in Cincinnati area. You're in Detroit. You wound up going to special forces training. You mentioned you had to get Spanish language training as well. And then after doing this, rotating back and forth between Central, South America, and Detroit, you wound up going overseas to other countries. Uh, Look, I'm a street cop. I I know that environment very well. I don't understand the idea, hey, we're going to Pakistan, and you're going to live there for three years. Well, actually, I went to Pakistan. I lived there for a total of 10 years. I did two tours almost back-to-back, where I worked, uh, again, as, as a mentor, um, one of the primary advisors to the U.S. ambassador, um, and worked with high-level counterparts in the Pakistani government, um, targeting, trafficking, narcotic operations, or groups working in Afghanistan and working in Pakistan. But the interesting part about that is I had an opportunity to also work undercover in Islamabad, targeting um, Pakistani traffickers who were supplying Nigerian drug trafficking organizations involved in the global distribution of heroin from Islamabad and Lahore, Pakistan, which was extremely interesting opportunity that I had. I would think it would be extremely dangerous as well. But, you know, the, the danger levels overseas in, in, say, for Pakistan in the urban city, there really was no danger because it's almost like a gentleman's uh, drug trafficking network. You know, I was dealing with, I was meeting, you know, very wealthy Pakistanis who were involved in, obtaining uh, heroin from Afghanistan and then selling it to buyers in Islamabad. And they were just simply middlemen making money. Um, and so no one really wanted to wanted escalated violence because then the counter-narcotic forces would come down hard on them. You know, Pakistan has very strict counter-narcotic laws. I believe it's a death penalty. So no one was looking for high-profile violence. It was very below, below the curtain, very quiet. Like I said, it's almost like a gentleman's drug trafficking network at that level. That seems to contradict the image I have in my mind. Again, I said I'm a street cop, so we right. didn't have those gentleman-type situations. Well, I mean, if you look at Central and South America, the drug culture is completely different. It's extremely violent. But then you go to you know, Hong Kong, if you go to Japan with the triads and Yakuza, or you go to Central Asia, you see almost no violence at all because the whole concept of working together, regardless of tribal, religious, or ethnic differences, is all pushed to the side because it's all about making money. Plus, those countries, they have a very strict criminal procedures for those who violate the law, so no one wants the attention, right? No one's daring the police to come after them. So it's very quiet. They work together, but don't underestimate these organizations. They can be extremely violent, but it takes a lot to get to that point, in my opinion. Well, they don't want to have the pressure from investigators and local forces on them, so... That type exactly. of violence brings about attention. Right. And, and especially, they're not going to kidnap America. They're not going to see a Kiki Camarena situation in Southeast Asia or the Far East. I, let me, it's most it's un, unlikely at best because they don't want the U.S. government full-time in their backyard. I mean, drug trafficking groups around the world look at Central and South America and they say, that is not what we want. And that's why you see the expansion of drug trafficking in Europe, Southeast Asia, because they don't attach it to violence. It's strictly low-key, make the sales, increase the addiction rate, and bring more narcotics into the country. So you don't see the same level of street violence. Um, I think it's increasing, but you don't see the same levels as you see, like in Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore, you know, as you well know, extremely violent city. When we worked the streets, and even working narcotics, it was very rare that we got a seizure. I know things have changed. It was very rare we got a seizure of a kilo or more. It was just not uh, not heard of. It wasn't commonplace. When we're talking about working overseas undercover, uh, especially in the Middle East, past, past, uh, uh, pa- 
Pakistan, those areas. What kind of weight are we talking about? You know, when I was working in Pakistan, Pakistan is primarily a transit country. So most of the cases um, that we were working, an average seizure would be easily 1,000 kilos of heroin. You know, I also worked precursor chemicals. Um, precursor chemicals required to make heroin at that time. There were a number of cases where we seized 14, 15, 20 metric tons of acetic anhydride, which is a critical precursor for the production of heroin, coming in from overseas, going through Jebel Ali in Dubai, transiting into the Karachi port, and then going north to Shower into Afghanistan. So I worked a lot of cases targeting precursor chemicals, with the idea being if we can disrupt the precursor chemical supply chain, we can degrade the ability of trafficking organizations to produce heroin. So it's kind of a re- reverse microeconomics approach to law enforcement that didn't really concentrate on targeting individuals, but it concentrated on targeting the system of narcotics production and transportation. And that yielded significant seizures. We're talking with Michael Brown. Michael is a retired DEA agent. He is also director of counter-narcotics partnerships at Regaku Analytical Devices. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. When we return, we're going to talk more about his overseas undercover investigations with narcotics and how it leads to what he's doing today. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O, Podopolo. Conversation with Michael Brown, retired DEA agent. He is also director of counter narcotics partnerships at Regaku Analytical Devices. We'll talk about why that's important in a moment. Michael, first of all, this is a fascinating conversation. Uh, and I have a feeling that we can sit down, have coffee, and talk over stories. There's dramatic differences between street enforcement which you did in, in Detroit and other cities in America, and the international stuff. And I'll be honest with you, I really don't have a comprehension of the international stuff, except what I see in television. And I know they get that totally wrong. Well, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've had an opportunity to really have a 360 view of the entire transnational criminal organization networks, especially related to narco-trafficking. You know, I've worked the street in Detroit, um, in Houston, and, and Connecticut, in Cincinnati, and then I had the opportunity to work, you know, the violence drug side of drug production and trans transshipment in Central and South America. But then I had the opportunity to work in Central Asia, which was a completely different drug culture, where I focused on drug transportation, drug networks, and my last tour of duty was in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, where I worked with the counter narcotics police on targeting the precursor chemicals that were coming in from from China into Myanmar being used to make methamphetamine. As you know, methamphetamine, Myanmar is the world's largest producer of methamphetamine, the second largest producer of heroin next to Afghanistan. So the challenges were, were tremendous. When you talk about working in Detroit or domestically, you're looking at going after individuals who support infrastructure, drug infrastructures. When you go overseas, you can look at individuals, but in my opinion, looking at production methodologies of drug trafficking organizations would be more effective as opposed to going after the individuals to some extent. 
Oh, yeah. Because as we've seen, you can take out Pablo Escobar, you can take out El Chapo, you can take out the, the higher-level dealers, but those individuals are quickly replaced. But you seize 14 tons of acidic anhydride or potassium protagonate or sodium cyanide, you put a significant crimp in the precursor chemical supply chain. And, I, and to make the, the, the example more relevant, look at the supply chain disruption today that we have in the United States, right? So the thing of that is a narcotic supply chain. If the traffickers can't get their chemicals in, everything stops, right? If we can't get our chips from Taiwan, we can't make cars, then the price of cars go up. So there is a way in Myanmar that we worked to target specifically the precursor chemical infrastructure that was supporting the narcotics production. And we did that by looking at the science, looking at technology, and finding a way to enhance the capability of the police to more effectively degrade that precursor chemical supply chain that was the lifeline to the narcotic production in eastern Shan State, which is an area in Myanmar where all the narcotics are produced. It makes perfect sense to me. Looking for precursors, the things you use, the, the chemicals to make the narcotics. I, I remember, I told my wife about this story, and I'll be very nonspecific. Back in the day when I was doing narcotics investigation, we had clone pagers. Pagers was a big thing. And you have to, the pager mm-hmm. would be transferred from person to person. And you have to jot down every number, check them out. Well, the DEA in particular uh, and some federal agencies started doing something but the big problem for, for drug organizations was the money, was the money laundering. So they set up these closet, clandestine money laundering organizations, and they give their clients who are targets a cell phone and a pager and say, hey, if you need us, contact us on this. And they'd have access to every phone call they ever made, every number they ever called. And personally, I thought it was brilliant, and that always led them to the drugs. Yeah, you know, without giving away too many trade secrets, you know, money laundering investigations certainly – uh, how trafficking organizations move their money and acquire their money is one of their critical capabilities, right? So the DEA, working with uh, Treasury and other federal and state local agencies, were able to put together very sophisticated money laundering operations, which allowed them to identify, you know, how, let's say, Sinaloa Cartel was moving money from drug sales in Detroit, Michigan, back to Mexico, and then interdicting and making those money seizures, because, quite frankly, that's why... Drug traffickers are in the business of selling right. drugs. It's to make money. Right. So if you can hit their money on one end, hit their precursors on the other end, you really you degrade and dismantle the capability of that organization. So frustrating you know, because Sorry, go ahead. these guys, I say guys, men and women, because in the drug game, just like the law enforcement game, it's all genders. Right? So don't fool all yourself genders. and don't judge a book by its cover. So they are constantly adapting and changing in their approaches and they'll send out uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 30 different type drones or couriers of bringing, transporting in narcotics or smuggling in, and knowing some of them will get nabbed, and some will get interdicted, but some will get through. So they're always working on changing and adapting their procedures, and law enforcement for so long was slow to react. Is it me, or have we gotten better at doing that? No, I think we've, we've gotten better at doing it, but of course... When you look at drug trafficking organizations or criminal organizations, they're like a virus, and the virus always wants to survive. You know, and I used the COVID example earlier. You know, we started out with COVID, then we went to Delta, then we went to the Omni uh, version. So that virus is constantly evolving to stay ahead of the vaccinations, and drug trafficking organizations are exactly the same way. They know at some point law enforcement is going to eventually catch up. But the problem with law enforcement is we have to do it by the numbers, right? We just can't suddenly change procedures 
because there are legal requirements. But as a drug trafficking organization, there are no rules. So you can continuously evolve at a much faster rate if there are no rules. And, of course, law enforcement is moving as fast as it can. But, of course, we have rules and regulations and procedures that we have to follow. And this is, this is I think, when I started in 1989, it took a lot longer to catch up. But I think now we see, we understand the threat that narcotics pose to our, our culture. And it's a, it's a national security threat right up there with, with terrorism to some extent, in my opinion. And we have now, we're moving much faster and making it much harder for narcotic groups or narco-trafficking groups to quickly adapt and move forward. You know, and a big part of that is DEA's international relationship. DEA has offices in, in 90 different countries. So we work in a symbiotic relationship globally to counter. It's like a chess game, right? Now we're thinking three, four, five moves ahead of the trafficker, trying to anticipate what he will do um, before he does it. And that kind of levels the playing field to some extent. But still, I think we have a long way to go, especially with synthetic opioids and fentanyl that's now at our doorstep. We've got to create legislation that covers these things, so they're always coming up with new synthetic ones. They're not illegal. Uh, by the way, I had Derek Maltz on retired DEA talking about yes. the, mm-hmm. the link between narco traffickers and terror groups and a fascinating conversation. Uh, and it's a real eye-opener for a lot of people. Now, I know you've been retired not that long, so you may still have some connections in the agency. Please let them know I said thank you for what they do, and I appreciate it very, very much. Since retiring, you've now changed direction. You're kind of in the corporate world. You're director of counter-narcotics partnerships at Regaku Analytical Devices. Tell us what that means. Well, Regaku is is an analytical company. They make a number of, of laser devices that can detect, um, you know, for example, they have a device that can tell you if a metal composition is actually, uh, you know, what it's made of and if it's a good composition. But they also have a counter-narcotics division. And in that counter-narcotics division, they make what's called a rescue CQL laser spectrometer. And what that device does, the handheld device, and it shoots a laser into a narcotic substance, whether powder, liquid, or solid, and it can tell you within seconds exactly what that composition is. Now, when I worked in Myanmar as the country attache working with the counterparts on their precursor chemical issue, I did some research and discovered uh, Rigaku, researched the company, and I said, you know what, I think this company is the scientific answer to my law enforcement problem in Myanmar. So I set up a program, I got funding, I purchased three of their devices for pilot program in Myanmar and gave it to the police. And within three months of initiating that pilot program, their precursor seizures went up from less than 2% to 20%. I mean, they were making precursor seizures ranging from 8 to 9 to 10 tons, metric tons, of essential precursors coming in across the what's Musay border, northern Miramar, into Miramar. So for the police, you know, the scientific approach was what they needed to be looking at. It didn't focus on making arrests. It didn't focus on expensive or dangerous investigations. It simply was a matter of pulling a truck over, taking the scanner, and scanning the material. And lo and behold, you know, a container that said, you know, sodium, that said uh, hydrogen peroxide, for example, actually contained potassium protagonate. So that gave the counterparts the probable cause to make those chemical seizures, which really proved that using technology, Rogaku technology, played a critical part in degrading a small portion of that precursor chemical supply chain. And now, what's that funny about I'm that, sorry. and I don't mean funny, is how many lives in America were saved when they do that by using that, that equipment? What is the company's website, and how can people get in touch with you directly? 
Well, they can simply get in touch with me. Just go michael.brown at ragaku.com and send me any questions or comments, and then I can provide them with additional information. And the website for the company, one more time, is? Well, it just be ragaku.com. Just dial in ragaku.com and then search narcotic and addiction technology and everything will come up on the webpage. Michael Brown, thanks so much for being guest on the show. All in your service, very much appreciated. Hey, Jay, I appreciate the opportunity. Stay safe out there. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.